Hello and welcome to the EMJ podcast with me, your host, Dr. Jonathan Sakia. For this week's episode, I'm joined by Dr. Rebecca Dobson, consultant cardiologist at Liverpool Heart and Chest Hospital here in the UK and lead of the regional cardio-oncology service. She's also the British Cardiovascular Society Women in Cardiology lead, so we'll be discussing correcting gender imbalances within cardiology and cardio-oncology, as well as other matters. So, Rebecca undertook her medical training at the University of Leicester Medical School, did her foundation and core medical training at Mersey Deanery, and subsequently completed cardiology specialty registrar training through the Mersey Cardiology Training Programme, and During this time, Rebecca also completed an MD research degree in echocardiographic assessment of carcinoid heart disease at the University of Liverpool. Following this, she worked as a cardiomyopathy clinical fellow before taking on her current position. Rebecca is passionate about improving the gender imbalance in cardiology, as well as leading the British Cardiovascular Society's Women in Cardiology team She's also an education committee member for Women as One, a non-profit organization seeking gender equality in medicine. She also acts as a guideline committee member for cardiac implanted devices in radiotherapy and in 2019 was awarded one of 15 places on the National Leadership Program for the British Cardiovascular Society Emerging Leaders Program. So she's clearly a mover and shaker. She's also previously held positions for the Health Education Northwest Specialist Training and Education Committee as a training representative and on the General Medical Council as a Quality Assurance of Basic Medical Education Program visitor. Further to this, Rebecca has contributed to the academic field, having written multiple original research articles, review papers, abstracts, and case reports. Outside of medicine and advocacy, Rebecca has a keen interest in music and holds grade eight in both piano and voice. I've told people before on this uh, this podcast that my guitar teacher many years ago told me it would be a service to humanity if I stopped. So I'm always impressed with people that have that skill as well. We're very privileged to have Rebecca with us uh, here today. And I look forward to learning more about her work on addressing gender imbalance in cardiology and her experiences as a female cardiologist. Welcome to the podcast, Rebecca Dodson. Hello, thank you for having me. It's lovely to be here. Well, we're delighted to have you. So to start with, tell us a little bit more about what led you to decision, you know, to decide to study medicine, to enter cardiology, and subsequently further specialisation. For as long as I can remember, I've wanted to be a doctor. Um, I remember being very young, you know, primary school and, and telling my teachers, I'm going to be a doctor when I grow up. And I don't really remember why or what piqued my interest at that early stage. I, there are no other doctors in my family, but I, I always knew that's what I wanted to do. And when I went to medical school, I decided quite quickly I was going to be an obstetrician. And I made sure that I spent a lot of time, as much time as I could doing obstetrics and spent my elective in Vanuatu in the South Pacific, delivering babies in in, uh, very different conditions and clinical context to to the UK. And very quickly, whilst I was in Vanuatu, I decided I didn't want to be an obstetrician. And I didn't really know what what subspecialty or what specialty I wanted to, to follow until I Took, started my first foundation job 
And I worked for an amazing um, group of cardiologists in Macclesfield in Cheshire. And that was when I decided that I was going to, to focus my efforts on, on cardiology. It's so often the case, isn't it, that uh, uh, there's one or more people who influence you, who you aspire to be like, you like them and they, you know, they sort of decide your course. Absolutely. Um, yeah, it's, um, I love, I love hearing those stories. So <laughs> I'm a Liverpool Medical School graduate and the city holds a very special place in my heart. What, what took you there? Um, maybe you can do a little promo statement to why uh, this prior European city of culture is so much more than where the Beatles were from. <laughs> um, I love Liverpool. I don't actually live in Liverpool. I live in Manchester and I choose to, to commute through to Liverpool. I, I, I love the city, and, but particularly I love the people. I'm from Newcastle upon Tyne originally. Um, and I think the Liverpudlians are similar to the Geordies, actually. They're very friendly, very open. Um, and I feel quite at home there. In terms of the, the hospital setup in Liverpool, because of the subspecialty that I work in, I work within cardio-oncology, um, I was keen to work in a tertiary centre to develop this service in, in collaboration with a regional oncology centre. And it felt like the natural place to work because I completed all of my um, sub, uh, cardiology training within the Mersey Deanery. So um, that's a bit of a commute, isn't it, from Manchester to Liverpool? It's not too bad. I live very near the motorway um, in Manchester and the hospital's just off the motorway at the other end. So it's about 40 minutes. It's not bad. Yeah. I, as a Londoner moving up to Liverpool to go to meds, medical school like you, um, mind you, in those days, Liverpool was a very different city to now. It was mm. a pretty depressed place, but the people are fantastic. And oh, they really are. They really are. I don't are. think it's any coincidence that so many successful comedians come from up there because the people just have... Uh, just have a funny attitude. Um, and I can think of so many stories. Anyway, that's for another time. So, <laughs> Rebecca, as a surgeon, I looked after a few patients with carcinoid tumours of the appendix. A very few. I mean, it's not common in my world no. anyway. And I must admit to knowing precious little of cardiac manifestations. For the benefit of those listening who are not familiar with this illness, please address it and then maybe get a bit more granular because your research and publications have focused on carcinoid heart disease. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so neuroendocrine tumours, as you say, are, are relatively rare tumours that um, usually, but not always, arise within the, the small bowel. About um, 30 to 40% of patients who have a neuroendocrine tumour within the bowel will have carcinoid syndrome, which is caused by the um, secretion of, of hormones like serotonin. And then about 30 to 40% of patients who have carcinoid syndrome will develop carcinoid heart disease. And that's a paraneoplastic effect, um, again, secondary to the, the serotonin secretion. And it causes um, plaque deposition, usually within the right side of the heart. So particularly the tricuspid valve leaflets and the pulmonary valve leaflets. But you can get plaque deposition anywhere, you know, within the aorta, within the walls of the ventricle. So... I, I um, got interested in this particular sort of niche area when I, when I did my MD several years ago. And this is where, where my love of cardio-oncology was born from because I was spending time at the Christie Hospital in Manchester, which is the um, tertiary cancer centre in Manchester. And was, I was scanning all of the neuroendocrine tumour patients there to, to see whether they had carcinoid heart disease. And whilst I was there, there would be a queue of people out the door saying, oh, whilst you're here, could you look at this ECG? Or can you tell me about this blood pressure? What should I do with this? And I thought, goodness, why, why 
is nobody helping the oncologists out with this? And it, it kind of snowballed from there. Um, but I still look after patients with carcinoid heart disease now and work very closely with the broader um, MDT and, and obviously with the cardiac surgeons in my hospital to make sure that we operate on them at the right time. Right. So that sort of takes us into the my next question, which is cardio-oncology. I mean, again, I have to admit, I knew precious little about malignancies in the heart. It's an important focus for you. Tell us tell us what's new, exciting. Well, take us on a journey through cardio-oncology for those of us who are ignorant. Okay. Um, so the first thing to say is that cardio-oncology, whilst that does encompass malignancies within the heart, that's a very, very small minority of the patients that I look after. So I think a better way of looking at cardio-oncology is the cardiac care of cancer patients. And my role in this is all about optimising patients' cardiac health to ensure that they can receive the best um, systemic anti-cancer therapy. So that might be risk stratification of a patient with a new diagnosis of cancer who has a pre-existing um, cardiovascular disease. So they may have, I don't know, atrial fibrillation or ischemic heart disease, and then they develop bowel cancer. And my role there is to try and optimise them and help the oncologist make the, the right decision about what the best treatment is. And then the the majority of the work that I do within cardio-oncology is identifying and treating cardiotoxicity. So we have several different discrete patient groups. So a lot of patients have received anthracycline chemotherapy or HER2 agonists like Herceptin. And increasingly, patients who've received immunotherapy which can also cause cardiotoxicity. And my role there is to screen and, and monitor these patients and then to treat them quickly if they do develop cardiotoxicity to reduce any unnecessary um, interruptions to their cancer therapy. Um, and then the, finally, the, the final patient group would be those who have a cardiac lymphoma or, or sarcoma or atrial myxoma, but they are, like I say, are the, the, a very small minority of the patients that I get involved with. Yeah, I remember just seeing one, I'm blanking even which hospital it was, there was a patient who had an atrial myxoma and everyone was being invited to come and, you know, take a gander at this. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I remember the same thing when I was a registrar, actually. Yeah, very, very, very rare. But I really like the idea of having a cardiac, you know, as a surgeon, if I was, you know, doing a major abdominal procedure, knowing that, and you know, it's a patient who's got some pre-existing cardiac issues or cardiac issues as a result of, you know, let's say a bowel obstruction causing changes in hemodynamics, having a physician who really understood the implications of that for me and, and how the circumstance would change throughout treatment, God, that would have been wonderful. So um, fascinating, fascinating. It, it is a fascinating specialty and it's a truly multidisciplinary collaborative specialty which I think is why I enjoy it so much I don't just work with cardiologists in fact I, I don't work very much with cardiologists from um, in this area it's more oncologists anaesthetists surgeons clinical nurse specialists pharmacists um, it's great great teamwork very very cool um, can I just go back what because I was I, at one point I thought I was going to do um, obs and gobs as we used to call it obstetrics <laughs> and gynecology what what turned you off? Oh, just labour frightened me, I realised. <laughs> <laughs> okay. What I decided a... it was a bit of an occupational hazard um, and the, the thought of it wasn't borne out in the reality. So, um, oh, right. yeah, I, I decided it wasn't for me. And I think oh, it was right. the right decision. 
I have to say, I, I did my obstetrics out in Chester. Oh, yeah. And um, I, they back in those days, we, we would live in the hospital, I think for two or three months, and just deliver as many babies as possible and, and, and look after the ladies after before and after childbirth. And mm -hmm. I had a blast. I mean, that, <laughs> that's what, because the staff were just so much fun. And it was, yeah, we had a great time. But yeah, I just found the whole thing all a little bit too repetitive. And also, very often the obstetrician just felt like a spare part for a normal childbirth. Yes, yeah, um, I know what you mean. The midwives were so much better at doing it. In fact, they taught me a lot more than the obstetricians did. But anyway, moving on a bit, uh, I'm fascinated by robotics, artificial intelligence or AI and advanced imaging. And they're combining to dramatically improve medicine. In fact, I've done a couple of podcasts recently, one with Sir Michael Brady, uh, who I've collaborated with um, uh, in, in discussions on various things. And it fascinates me. And in a previous interview with EMJ, you spoke about how artificial intelligence will become increasingly important in cardiac imaging. Some folks who are listening might not know of that interview, so astonishing as it seems. So please, can you, can you give us an, an overview, Rebecca, and, and how things are progressing? Yeah. Um, so within cardio-oncology, cardiac imaging is absolutely pivotal. So I make most or the vast majority of my clinical decisions are based upon um, what the patient's heart looks like on their echocardiogram or their MRI scan. So I need to know accurately and in a reproducible way what the LV function is, is doing. And things have advanced rapidly over the last, oh, when did I do my MD? Over the last 10 years, things have advanced rapidly within echocardiography. So when I was doing my MD and I was calculating um, global longitudinal strain, which is a semi-automated way of, of assessing LV function, it was very manual, really. It wasn't very automatic at all. And it would take me about three hours per patient to calculate this value. Now, when the physiologists are performing the scans in the cardio-oncology clinic, and we always use global longitudinal strain as part of our assessment, it takes about 10 seconds, 20 seconds. And it's going to get even quicker. In fact, we've just, we're, we're piloting a, um, a particular type of software at the moment in our trust whereby we're doing it manually in the, the 10, 20 second method. But alongside that, there is a, um, an artificial intelligence program which is doing it as well. And it's also calculating 3D volumes and 2D ejection fraction. And it's doing all of that at the same time so that when the physiologist goes to write their report, they can look at what the, the computer has, has assessed and see how it compares. So we're in the early stages in our trust at comparing the two, but I suspect that we will increasingly rely on automated ways to to help us ensure that we are scanning patients in an accurate and reproducible way. Right. So um, a lot of your work and a lot of my introduction was about gender disparities relating to your specialty. And I'd like to dig into that. Do you work with other female cardiologists? When did you notice there was a problem have you personally experienced discrimination in your career? So have at it. The floor is yours. <laughs> oh, how long have you got? So <laughs> oh, well, just go. For it. you know, it's funny because I think of myself as a pretty evolved individual. Um, and to discover that I may have said or done things that were offensive to women horrifies me, frankly. Mm. Uh, I've certainly never 
you know, in appointing trainees who work with me, whether they were uh, applying for medical school, residency, fellowship, research posts working with me, or now that I work in industry, I've worked with a huge number of women. And it's, you know, I don't think I see the world through that optic, but clearly there's a problem. And yeah. um, I'd love to get your perspective. So cardiology definitely has a problem. It, it's the biggest medical specialty in terms of the, there are more consultant cardiologists than any other um, medical physicians, but we have the fewest number of women um, consultants. And I think that's, there's lots of reasons for that. You know, traditionally, it's been a man's specialty. It's been seen as a, a very practical specialty where you have to work all hours of day and night and weekend. It was thought that you couldn't have a family, you couldn't work part time um, and be a cardiologist. And I think that put a lot of people off. And I think some of these myths are self-perpetuating because then you get people who will say to the enthusiastic female medical student, oh, you don't want to be a cardiologist because you can't have a family if you if you become a consultant cardiologist. And of course, that's absolute nonsense. But it, it does a lot of damage when people who perhaps are being well-meaning, but they put people off um, and then you have a lack of role models. So, again, if you're a junior doctor or a medical student interested in cardiology, unless you see someone who looks like you in that specialty, you may think, you know, I'm not welcome there. That That's not the specialty for me. Now, I've been very lucky in that when I when I was an F1 and I, I did my cardiology job, one of the cardiologists that I worked with uh, was female and then I was I was always encouraged to be a cardiologist. I, I had really good role models, but also I was encouraged by the men and the women. So the male cardiologists I worked with were they had young families. They were really interested and engaging and really encouraged me to, to pursue it. And in answer to your question about have I personally experienced discrimination? I've had lots and lots of minor everyday sexist comments made by patients and staff, but I, I view myself as being very lucky, actually. Like I say, I've been encouraged every step of the way. Once I started my cardiology training, I was really well supported. When I got pregnant and then I got hyperemesis and I was a bit of a nightmare trainee because I was always either on the floor, I'd fainted or I was vomiting. And I was working in a, a tertiary centre there and, and was worried that the cardiologists would judge me for being the problem trainee who was pregnant. And they, they didn't. They supported me. They encouraged me. Um, they helped me. And that continued all the way through my career to date, which is why I, I've, why I wanted a consultant job in the trust that I, I did a lot of my training in because it's such a nice environment where I work. But I'm very aware that other people, other women within cardiology face a very different reality and in fact, I was in a meeting last night when we were talking about the experiences around the country, around the UK. Um, and I was I still am shocked by some of the things that are said, some of the things that are done. There is a lot of work still to be done to to fully address the issue. Yeah, I, I remember once I was blessed when I was young with looking young. And I was once taking a medical student round who was taller, bigger than me, had a moustache and the, the patient turned to me and said, I don't want you looking after me. I want him. He was the medical student. Like <laughs> and he looked like the cardiologist. Well, the surgeon. So, uh, yeah. You oh, know, sorry, the surgeon. A, yeah, yeah. I was a surgical trainee, at, like a senior registrar or something at the time. It was my medical student. So no, that, That's happened to me so many times. Um, or I've been with a, um, 
a male specialist nurse or, you know, someone else who's not yeah. in a uniform and the patient, or sometimes even another member of staff has assumed that I'm a secretary, a pharmacist, a nurse. And there's nothing wrong with being a secretary, a pharmacist or a nurse, but that's not who I am. And even, you know, I can introduce myself at the beginning of a consultation as, hi, I'm Rebecca Dobson, I'm the consultant. And at the end, they'll still say, thank you, nurse. I can see how it's irritating, but, you know, there's... And I want to be just a little bit contentious here because whilst, you know, disparaging someone on the on the basis of their their sex, their gender, the colour of their skin, their religion, anything is clearly, clearly unacceptable. But, you know, I know that my, my late mum, bless her, had some, you know, she was the same age as the Queen, actually, and uh, she she had some very old-fashioned perspectives. And she had a she had a problem with having a female doctor, and I used to say, "Mum, you know, Doctor Newman is is top notch." So how do you deal these things with humour? Because otherwise, it's going to bite eat away at you, isn't it? Yeah. Um. So I used to try and deal with it with humour, but then I, I lost my sense of humour actually, and I think a, a one off. I think yeah, you can sort of laugh about it, but it if it happens repeatedly, which it has done to me. Um, and probably to every other woman working within medicine or surgery. Yeah. It, it doesn't, it, you know, it stops being funny. So now I will just, if, you know, I had a comment a few months ago from a patient who his words were, there's no place in medicine for women. You should be at home having children. And he, he was an older man. He was of an older generation. And he honestly believed what he was saying. Yeah, well, that's but clearly, he, that's clearly nonsense. That That's clearly. No, no, no. I know it's nonsense, but I don't, What a few years ago, I may have laughed at it and, and yeah. kind of just tried to put it under the carpet. Yeah. But particularly because I was with some medical, stu- female medical students at the time. Yes. So I was very clear to him that, you know, those those thoughts and opinions were not welcome yeah yeah and and obviously you've then got responsibilities as you said women need a role everyone needs role models right everyone needs absolutely and of course again just uh just so that no one sends me offensive emails (laughs) not being a woman i cannot know what that experience is like obviously and um yeah, so good on you. So what today, what are the, other than what you've told us, what are the barriers for young women considering moving into cardiology? So I think I've, I've mentioned the main ones, the lack of role models and, and people being put off by people, other people who perhaps are, are well-meaning um, are the main barriers. I, I think we've, we've done a lot of work within the Cardiac Society, which I know we'll come on to talk about, but um, we've done a lot of work there in removing these myths and, and, and misconceptions about cardiology, because in reality, there are no barriers. If you really want to do something, whether that's cardiology or surgery or rocket science, you know, if you want to do it, you should pursue your dream. And if you're happy to work hard, then there's no reason why you can't achieve it. I, I still think there probably are some centres within the UK who have outdated and sexist opinions about this and perhaps would be more likely to employ a a male colleague than a female colleague because they'd be worried about them going off on maternity leave or something but I'd say the majority of centres now have at least one female cardiologist or I'd hope they would and then you know you get one and then you get another and then you get more Um, and that's the only way to solve this is over time it's not going to change overnight. Yeah so let's look at some of the specifics. You become involved with the British Cardiovascular Society's Women in Cardiology team. Um, how did that come about? Um, who helped you along the way? Again, the floor is yours, Rebecca. 
So the um, the British Cardiovascular Society have elections every three years for different positions within the society. So different, you know, there might be a, a programme committee chair or an education committee chair. And, and they also have since, I think, about 2003, don't quote me on that, but around that sort of time, they've had a Women in Cardiology Council representative. So when this position became available a couple of years ago, when the election was about to happen, um, it was actually the then president of uh, the BCS, Professor Simon Ray, who is a, an amazing cardiologist up here in Manchester, who contacted people who um, had been doing the, the um, I've forgotten the name of it now, we all did a, a Emerging Leaders programme that BCS facilitated. So he contacted all the women who'd done the, the Emerging Leaders programme to say, you know, have you thought about applying and we, we want some fresh blood and and new new ideas so I thought all right I'll I'll, I'll give it a go because I've always been quite passionate about trying to get more women into cardiology and it didn't for, for one second think that I, I'd get elected but I did and then thought goodness what, what what do I do with this you know how, how do I make a difference here and I realized quite quickly that I needed to um I needed a, a team of people. So I, I contacted some colleagues and friends who were all women working within cardiology, both at a consultant and a registrar level, and set up a women in cardiology team. And we've worked really incredibly hard over the last few years to try and um, engage better with, with junior doctors and medical students considering a career in cardiology. But also we've, we've tried really hard to better support the women already working within the specialty. So I, I can talk about this for hours. Do you want me to go on and tell you a little bit about what we've done? Or Yeah, I do. And, and in fact, maybe you can weave into this uh, the, uh, you, your, your role as the lead for women in cardiology, research that's been done, and, and specifically what's being done to address the, the, the gap. I mean, in terms of research, of course, it's all qualitative, but there's lots of, of papers out there which talk about the barriers that we've already discussed. So lack of role models, poor representation of women at um, national conferences in terms of speakers or panel um, panel members. And then also these myths that, you know, you can't work less than full time and you, you can't be a, a mum and, and a cardiologist. So one of the first things that I did was was try and um, increase the profile of some brilliant role models within cardiology to try and dispel these myths. So I set up um, a website. So we've got a website that's um, www.womenincardiology.uk, which is full of resources for women in cardiology or, or people considering a career in cardiology. So there's lots of role models on there in different subspecialties within cardiology explaining about their career and what they enjoy about it. And then you can contact them if you want to ask any more questions. We've also done a lot of work to try and provide some guidance on things that that women do worry about. So obviously women can get pregnant, they have to they may have to work with radiation, and it's a big concern for women. And I remember when I when I was pregnant with my first child really being quite stressed out about what's the right thing to do do I go in the lab do I stay out of the lab how's that going to impact on my training am I going to be judged so we've put together guidance specifically on pregnancy which covers radiation it covers antenatal care it covers miscarriage IVF and that's gone down really well not just with the women but also with the men in cardiology who are working with the women so that they can help and support an advocate for them we've also done some work on improving the guidance for returning to work after a period of absence 
Now, obviously, that's not just applicable to women because it could be for maternity leave, but it could be for shared parental leave, sick leave, out of programme time. But we've um, developed some specific guidance for cardiology trainees and consultants to to help both them and their supervisors and colleagues bridge that gap because it, it can be really daunting. I remember when I came back from my first maternity leave, I had 12 months off and I sat in my first clinic and thought, I can't remember the dose of bisoprolol. I was just so out of out of kilter. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm really proud of the fact that we've, we've got these guidelines out there, which are freely available for everyone. And I think they really do help address some of the concerns that women in cardiology have. And for things like you just mentioned, Rebecca, you know, just needing a refresher, is there, are there any schemes to provide refresher courses for people who are coming back, women who are coming back into the specialty, or frankly, men for, for, for shared um, uh, parental leave or sick leave? So from a cardiology-specific perspective, I think there, there, pre-COVID, there was a course that was run annually. Um, now, I don't know whether that still runs now, which was cardiology-specific for people returning after a, a, some time off. More generally, and I guess this would be more applicable to those who are still at a training stage and who are having to do acute medicine, etc., Health Education England have um, amazing support for trainees returning to work. So it's called support. We can add the the link to the the show notes. Um, it's only for England though, and I, I'm I don't think there is a, a similar provision for trainees in in Ireland, Wales, or Scotland, unfortunately. But that that provision is brilliant in terms of there is. Uh, dedicated funding for trainees to attend courses, to have mentoring, um, to have a mentor to help them. So I'd encourage any trainee who's returning to work after a period of absence, for whatever reason, to speak to their educational supervisor about the support programme, because that would be really useful for them. So so I I fly airplanes as an avocation, and um, there's an organisation in America, the Aircraft Owners and Pilots Association, that put together rusty pilots uh, training. And, you know, with COVID, obviously a lot of people, you know, full-time pilots who flew for airlines or charter operators or such like, were not flying. Mm. Um, And a lot of people who fly as their avocation for many other reasons were not flying. And this has been something that's been very well received. Might be a good thing to explore, yeah? Oh, absolutely. And and we have considered it. I think the issue is that the numbers are are small and you'd need to have it probably on a national level rather than a regional level. And then if you do it on a regional level, uh, sorry, on a national level, how many times a year do you do it? And of course, everyone's taking time out at different um, parts of the year. So I I think the logistics need a bit more thought, but absolutely, I think there is a need for it. Certainly when I came back after my second child, I remember being really stressed out about practical skills and not not being able to remember how to put a central line in and things like that but then if you're coming back from maternity leave you can have these days called keep in touch days where you can go in and 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 do different things whatever you you feel that you need for your educational need so I I went and spent some time with a friendly niece test in theatre and made sure I'd got my line skills up to up to scratch so there are there are some there is some provision there but I agree there there is room for more so over and above the things you've told us about and, and I don't want to flog this to death. Um, I think just raising the awareness in people's minds and looking the world through a slightly different optic is in and of itself helpful. But I was looking at some statistics and apparently 68%, 68% of applicants for medical and related degrees in the UK are female, but they're not flowing through into specialties like cardiology. 
interestingly, in surgery, they are. You know, I practiced yeah. in America for many years and there was a corridor in the Department of Surgery with the pictures of the graduating chief residents going back many, many decades. And it was white men, white men, white men, white men. And then yeah. suddenly it wasn't. And in fact, you know, the last few photographs were largely women and people of color, which is, you know, it's great to see. They're, yeah. they're not flowing through into specialties like cardiology. If so, over and above what you've already told us, what can medical schools, deaneries, professional societies do to improve female uptake into your specialty and frankly, any other specialty? I think as a specialty, we need to take responsibility for this problem and engage better with medical students. Now, of course, the majority of us do spend time with medical students, but I know when I was a medical student, you had some brilliant consultants who were dead keen and, and would spend a lot of time with you and would inspire you. And then there were other consultants who really didn't want you there. And I think we've all got a responsibility to to try and inspire um, and engage with with the medical students of today. We've spent quite a lot of efforts through the British Cardiac Society and the Women in Cardiology work to better engage with medical schools. We've now got a, a medical student representative on our Women in Cardiology team. And we've just launched a, a medical student um, essay competition to try and engage students to think about the, the reasons why there aren't so many women in cardiology. And of course, everyone who enters the competition, we've then got their details and we can liaise with them and encourage them to join up to our mailing list, et cetera, et cetera. Um, there's also BUCA, which is the British Undergraduate Cardiovascular Association. Um, and this is a group of really motivated, inspirational students who have set up this society. They all want to be cardiologists or they all are interested in cardiology and have set up a society to try and um, combine forces. And I'm happy to say that their president is a woman um, and they've asked me to be their honorary president this year. And, and I feel that the, we've got a lot more work to do with them to try and um, just engage better with them and inspire them and, and dispel these myths that, that you can't be... You, know, you can't work part-time or whatever it's difficult i don't think there's any one solution to the problem i think it's going to be cumulative isn't it all all yeah. of these little things so bcs we're running a, a cardiology for undergraduates course in november so that is um basically a whistle stop tour of cardiology for anyone who might be interested so there's 10 minute talks on each subspecialty within cardiology and then a, an opportunity to to ask questions i think things like that really help because a lot of students won't know about um, the different subspecialties and there's a talk in there on working less than full time there's a talk on how to get into cardiology so I'd really encourage any students listening to sign up for that. Yeah so um, you mentioned earlier about if people men women anyone wants to be anything they can um, and it's it's sort of like the attitude of your mood if you want to be a success or you want to be a failure or you want to be sad or you want to be happy, you're right. Okay. Yeah. So beyond, again, beyond everything you've said and that, if, if um, a young um, female medical student came to you and said, I'm contemplating a career in cardiology, never mind the barriers. Give us, just as I asked you to give an advertisement for Liverpool, Give an advertisement for cardiology. Why is it, in your opinion, the best specialty? I think cardiology is the best specialty because it's such a broad specialty. 
um, there is something there for everyone. So if you are really good with your hands and very practically orientated, there are the, the practical subspecialties like intervention or electrophysiology when it's a lot of lab work. If that's not for you and you don't like getting up in the middle of the night, you might want to be an imager where by you, you're not working in such a high powered, stressful situation, but you, you might want to, to think, you know, you, you like making intricate decisions based on the imaging or you may be more interested in um, adult congenital heart disease and looking after patients who've been born with, with cardiac conditions who have survived through to adulthood. Or perhaps you're interested in sports cardiology and how the heart can be affected by taking part in lots of sport. Or, you know, there's, lot, there's loads of different subspecialties. There is something there for everyone. And there is, we are making inroads in terms of addressing the gender inequity and i think or i hope that in the future cardiology will be will be welcoming to all because there certainly is a place for everyone who wants to do it that's lovely to hear so my final question for you dr rebecca dobson if you had three wishes who could be granted but to you by a genie that would advance cardiology and cardio-oncology or women's positions it's your choice what would your three wishes be Okay, so wish number one would be that there is no need to have a Women in Cardiology Council representative for the BCS. So I want there to be complete gender equity within the specialty so that we don't have to have that particular position. So that would be my first wish. I think my second wish would pertain to cardio-oncology. So there are very few cardio-oncology services around the UK and, and I'm very conscious that in, in some areas... Uh, patients struggle to get seen in a timely fashion um, and that does lead to delays in their cancer treatment which in turn can have issues with can, can have a, a knock-on effect on their prognosis so my second wish would be that we have um, more cardio-oncology services around the UK so that everyone can access them and my third wish I think I really wish I hope that in the future cardiac imaging will continue to advance and we can um perhaps identify at an even earlier stage the patients who who are going to develop cardiotoxicity because at the moment we don't really understand and we're not very good at predicting which patients are going to run into problems and um, we know that there are certain risk factors but we we, we haven't got it nailed down really and I, I still am surprised every day by by some patients so I, I hope that we can improve our cardiac imaging and our understanding of the the mechanisms of cardiotoxicity. Well, those those are wonderful wishes, and I'm sure <laughs> with your uh, with your energy, enthusiasm, and wisdom, I think you just might make them come true. <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> well, um, I'm afraid that's all we've got time for on this episode of the EMJ podcast. And I'd like to thank you, Dr. Rebecca Dobson, for taking the time to talk with us today, for sharing your experiences as a female working in cardiology and all you're doing for patients and the specialty of cardiology. It's, it's truly been a pleasure to speak with you. Oh, I've really enjoyed it. Thank you for having me. So folks, if you've enjoyed this episode, please like us on social media, tell your friends, uh, subscribe, and join us next week for another episode exploring the captivating world of healthcare. And until then, I'm your host, Dr. Jonathan Sakia. Thank you for listening to the EMJ podcast. So until next time, stay safe, stay well, stay curious. <laughs> <laughs>